All right, we are back. Uh, we got a miscellaneous uh, bunch of things to go over in segment three today. I'd like to start with a special report in The Economist magazine in their July 29th issue, which I think uh, you should take a look at. It was a special report on the Suez Crisis. July 26th of this year marked the 50th anniversary of the attack by the combined forces of Great Britain, France, and Israel on Egypt after uh, the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdul Nasser, seized the Suez Canal. It's a fascinating report, interesting just from a number of standpoints. Turned out Nasser decided to seize the Suez Canal and basically, uh, you know, loot its revenue to go ahead and build the high dam at Aswan, which the Americans were getting, uh, getting some cold feet about backing. As it turned out, in, in, the, in the world of Cold War politics, the Russians would eventually foot the bill for the high dam at Aswan, which has been something of an ecological disaster for the nation of Egypt. For 5,000 years, the annual flooding of the Nile had restored the fertility of the whole Nile Valley, and the Aswan Dam in one fell swoop changed all of that. That's a topic for another day. Just want to excerpt a couple items from this special report. The, uh, the British and French were itching to go right back in and retake the canal, but Dwight Eisenhower uh, was not, uh, not advocating the use of force in this matter. At this point, the Israelis stepped in. On September 30th, a delegation from Israel secretly presented the French with a fabricated Casas Belli. Israel would invade Egypt and race to the canal. The French and British could then invade, posing as peacekeepers to separate the two sides and occupy the canal, ostensibly to guarantee a free passage of shipping. All of the appropriate parties then proceeded to lie about this secret negotiation, and on October 29th, Israeli paratroopers, led by a zealous officer called Ariel Sharon, were dropped into Sinai to fulfill their side of the bargain. President Eisenhower was determined to put a stop to the whole enterprise. He then told the British that if they continued with this invasion and bombing of Egypt, uh, he would refuse to allow the International Monetary Fund to give emergency loans to Britain. Prime Minister Anthony Eden then stopped the invasion. The French were furious, but they were obliged to agree because their troops were under British command. The lesson drawn by France? Well, they could never rely on the British again. They felt that, uh, that the UK would always put its special relationship with America above its European interests. France then warmed up to Germany and proceeded to organize what has now become the European Union. Wrote The Economist, the major lesson of Suez for the British was the country would never be able to act independently of America again. Unlike the French, who have sought to lead Europe, most British politicians have been content to play second fiddle to America. The big winner was Israel. Before 1956, Israel had been militarily vulnerable, but uh, in the wake of this uh, Suez crisis, Israel occupied the Sinai and Gaza and began the gradual inversion of the state of affairs of it being vulnerable. It also marked the first expansion of Israel beyond its original borders, with all of these subsequent criticisms of its occupation of Arab or Palestinian land. As for America, well, that would mark the last time an American president would face down Israel. We've been very, very critical on this program in recent weeks of what, uh, what Israel did to Lebanon. Uh, we not only are not backing away from that uh, one inch, we also would offer a word of support to the Sacramento News and Review for its political cartoon of a few weeks back. 
a number of furious letters to the editor at the SNNR. Uh, the paper was accused of being uh, the equivalent of Nazi propaganda. We think that on the balance, the reporting you see here in America tends to be more pro-Israeli than it probably ought to be if it were balanced. On last week's program, we spoke with Leila Anani, an actual eyewitness to what had taken place in Lebanon, as well as R.V. Scheid of the Sacramento News and Review, who's been corresponding with Rita Malouf, who has been sending emails out of war-torn Lebanon. Uh, Rita is apparently going to be a student here at UCD later this year, and we hope that we will be speaking with her directly when she returns stateside. All right, a few miscellaneous items. Uh, A state court in North Carolina ruled that the state's 201-year-old law barring unmarried couples from living together is unconstitutional. Six states, Virginia, West Virginia, Florida, Michigan, Mississippi, and North Dakota, still have laws on the books that prohibit cohabitation. Since their state courts haven't ruled on it, we presume it remains illegal in all those six states. We, we get sent a lot of emails, and, and we thank you for those. Bruce in L.A. reminded us that there's an interesting item we should talk about. We mentioned on this show last year that in the Soviet Union, for many years, research has been done on the use of viruses that attack bacteria. By using these various bacteriophage-type viruses, disease is fought because the disease-causing bacteria is itself then put under attack by the viruses. It's a very interesting biological approach to dealing with infectious diseases. And apparently the Russians do lead the pack on this. Well, but we may be catching up. When it was announced that last week, certain viruses are now being authorized to be used as food additives to prevent the growth of listeria bacteria on various processed meats. Listeria infections uh, managed to kill, uh, you know, maybe a hundred people, a couple hundred people, I think, in the U.S. uh, every year. And this may be a way to fight that. It's pretty interesting stuff. And we feel pretty certain that this is going to be a very productive avenue uh, in the future. And we may owe something of an apology to, uh, to Richard, who last year tried to get us interested in this program on uh, what he claimed was a, a, a planetary scientist's good evidence that there were geysers on Mars. We were skeptical and, 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 and suggested in private correspondence with Richard that this was probably more like the face on Mars, probably a lot of fantasy. He insisted this was a good scientist doing the work, and maybe we should have listened to him because, according to David Perlman writing in the Chronicle uh, last week and also turning up on the web, uh, is this story that indeed... Good scientists, uh, planetary scientists examining photographs uh, taken of the Martian South Pole have concluded that dirty geysers uh, of CO2 turning to gas from its solid form are indeed producing geysers on the Martian South Pole. Well, these are not water geysers, which made us, uh, which is why we were skeptical about the term geyser, but I guess if you're blowing up a lot of gas uh, with a lot of dirt in it, well, I guess, it, I guess it still is a geyser, even if it's not using water. Anyway, that's what the scientists are thinking, and we're going to return to that, uh, that topic in a future show. Every so often we take the Sunday paper out, and we enjoy reading, like, the parade section and various things. Uh, we do note the Sacramento Bee, in its wisdom, has decided that the forum pages were just way too long, so they've been shortening them down to basically, uh, you know, 
two pages or four printed pages, one fold over leaf. Thankfully, cooler heads have prevailed over at the San Francisco Chronicle, and you can still get an opinion page, uh, an opinion section of a decent length. But at any rate, we do have a soft spot in our heart for the Marilyn Vos Savant column, which I believe appears in Parade uh, every week. Marilyn has been reputed to be the highest-scoring person on an IQ test everywhere, has been labeled the world's smartest woman, and she, she is pretty smart. But I like this particular exchange. Someone wrote her, In your book, The Art of Spelling... You note attempts to reform English spelling that did not catch on. How about a modest start toward simplification by spelling through, though, and although as T-H-R-U, T-H-O, and A-L-T-H-O, forms called acceptable in many dictionaries. Without change, English remains unnecessarily difficult for millions. That was a letter from Roger Bonilla in Sunnyvale. Wrote Marilyn, This month marks the 100th anniversary of the attempt by Theodore Roosevelt, a poor speller himself, to reform English spelling. The president thought spelling words such as color, C-O-L-O-U-R, with an extra letter, was downright silly. So he issued a directive to the government printing office to adopt 300 reformed spellings. Despite many notable proponents, Congress overturned the directive. With the exception of a few changes that were already creeping into use, honor, with a U, became honor, H-O-N-O-R, and center, C-E-N-T-R-E, became C-E-N-T-E-R, for example, spelling reform flopped. So Marilyn said she's completely on board with T-H-R-U, T-H-O, and A-L-T-H-O, and we say bravo to that. If you count them up, O-U-G-H has nine different pronunciations in English. Plow, dough, slew, it's nuts. My favorite, hiccup. Can you imagine if you're the poor guy trying to learn English and someone has to tell you, no, it's not hiccough, it's hiccup. Another item which caught uh, caught my eye in the parade section was the fact that the upcoming uh, bio pick about Bob Dylan is apparently going to feature six different actors and actresses portraying Bob Dylan in various stages of his life. My favorite is the young Bobby Dylan, circa 1963, is apparently going to be played by Australian actress Kate Blanchett. Now we have to confess, ladies and gentlemen, there is a schism here at Radio Parallax over the issue of Mr. Bobby Dylan. My producer, Mr. McMillan, claims that Bob Dylan is a musical genius. Yours truly, moi, contends that Bob Dylan is a marketing genius. In support of the McMillan view of things, my producer offers up the Rolling Stone 500, the listing of the 500 most, uh, I guess, best regarded tunes in the history of rock and roll. Heading the list, number one, Like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan, available on Highway 61 Revisited. Personally, I think any list that puts the Beatles' top tune as number eight, Hey Jude, is inherently flawed. For the record... Mr. McMillan concurs on that one. Oh, not that you shouldn't have Beatles tunes in, in the top ten, but, but not Hey Jude. That shouldn't make the top ten Beatles tunes. 
But of course, we've said it before and we'll say it again. De gustibus non est disputandum. You shouldn't argue about how much you like something, but, but, it's, but it's just so fun. We'll have to bring back our, uh, our resident KDVS musicologist, Rick, to talk a little bit about things like this list. I, I just look at this. Number 25, God Only Knows. Great tune, but they rank it below Be My Baby by the Ronettes at number 22. Something wrong here. But anyway, speaking of Mr. Bobby Dylan, you may have noticed that yesterday folk legend Bob Dylan came out and attacked the quality of modern musical recordings, dismissing them as atrocious. The singer said he could not think of a decent-sounding record made in the last two decades. Quoting Mr. Dylan, You listen to these modern records. They're atrocious. They have sound all over them. CDs are small. There's no stature to it. (laughs) Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the genius of rock and roll. CDs are small. There's no stature to it. We reported last week on the uh, continuing deterioration of Discover Magazine. After I dashed off a nasty note to them about their column by Bruno Maddox, they wrote back and said, Thank you for writing to Discover. Due to the tremendous volume of mail we received, we regret that we were unable to respond personally to each writer. However, we do read every single letter and your comments will be circulated among our editors and reporters for their consideration. Yes, that's right. If you write Discover Magazine, they will be unable to respond personally due to the volume, but they will be passing your remarks around amongst the editors and reporters for their consideration. We say stick to New Scientist. Been a few news items of late, noting that the uh, the construction on the International Space Station uh, has ground to a halt since they've had trouble with the uh, the space shuttle. We are uh, huge advocates of space exploration on this program, but we have to admit the shuttle appears to exist to serve as the space station, and the space station appears to exist to serve as an excuse to have a shuttle. The truth is. Having a space station in low Earth orbit doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense for any kind of research. It is a giant white elephant. There, we said it. We should be going to Mars. Yes, with people. With robots mainly, but we should also send people there. As Andy Rooney pointed out, we're spending $5.6 billion a month for a war in Iraq. If you took the funds for less than two years' worth of Iraq war, we could go to Mars. It makes a hell of a lot more sense. Going to Mars won't get anybody blown up. hundred billion bucks to put a man on Mars would be a bargain. You know, we just plugged the heck out of a new scientist a second ago, and uh, I was disturbed to see their July 29th issue, The Truth About Civilization, Why the Doomsayers Have It All Wrong, giving quite a different viewpoint of what happened on Easter Island. Uh, We haven't had a chance to thoroughly go through that article, but we think that Jared Diamond's article in uh, Discover, back when it was a good magazine uh, some years ago, is one of the great articles we've ever read, and it was the basis um, for uh, one one of the most important chapters in his book, Collapse. We tried to get Jared Diamond for this program, we were unable to do so, but we may, we may yet prevail. We'd like, to, we'd like to have him as a future guest. We're also going to try and bring back uh, Pete McCloskey. He sent uh, very nice letters out to anyone uh, who supported him in his campaign. He uh, seems a little bit down in the mouth about being beaten soundly by Richard Pombo, but hey, Pombo's one of the powerhouses in Congress. They weren't going to let him go down too easily.
He has forced Pombo to at least defend some of his positions. We refer to the Sacramento Bee August 4th article, wherein Richard Pombo is planning to have hearings on a House measure to allow drilling in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. This prompted uh, Pombo to reach across the aisle to his buddy, Democratic uh, Representative Dennis Cardoz of Atwater, who said, we probably should use this as the quote of the show today, he said the royalties from Alaska refuge drilling could be used to fund development of alternative fuels. So yes, drilling in the wildlife refuge could be very green. Another guest we need to get on who has been on KDVS before, uh, Richard Estes and Ron Glick have had uh, Freddie Oakley, Yolo County's Registrar of Voters, on the show. We need to get her on this show as well. He's been very outspoken about what's going on in regards to uh, HAVA, the Help America Vote Act, and what a disaster it's been. In fact, she was quoted in the B as saying, It's a disaster. We're sinking millions nationwide, billions actually, of dollars into technology that is not ready for the marketplace and that will be obsolete even earlier. Here, here. But that is it, I'm sorry to say, for today's program. We thank Sean Minton and Paul Dorn for talking with us in segment two. Would also thank my producer, Mr. Edward McMillan, who, uh, who has agreed to disagree with me on the matter of Bob Dylan. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll see you next Thursday at 5. I would like to note that if you're listening uh, to the radio on Monday, you might consider KXJZ at 2 o'clock because I'll be interviewing Special Agent of the FBI, John Peterson, about his bust of Jerry Whitworth, who was living right here in Davis in 1986 as part of the Walker Spy Ring. It was considered to be one of the most important espionage operations in the history of the Cold War, and integral to it was a guy living in a trailer right here off a pole line road in Davis. So you may want to tune in on Monday. Now, stay tuned for Todd. Vacuum of his eyes and say.